So one of my clients in the past was a gentleman who had a vice president role with an energy company, and he had a couple of different business units and departments that reported to him. And in his role, he developed a management method of creating these weekly reports. And so each division head or company that he oversaw had to create a weekly report that was tailored to that company, the information that was specific to that business. So he could quickly see what was going on in that business beyond what the financials might tell him. Hey, it's the Profit Answer Man, Rocky Lalvani. If you're new to the podcast, check out my interview with Mike Michalowicz. It's episode number two. If you want to hear about each chapter in the Profit First book, go back and listen to episodes three through 13. Episode one is the why and how. On the Profit Answer Man, we learn money mastery without all the complicated accounting mumbo-jumbo using a simple system. Your accountant is busy documenting your transactions and creating a rearview mirror of what happened. My guess is you don't even look at the reports they sent you. If you're like most business owners, you struggle with this. And it's not your fault. We aren't taught money in school. And accountants aren't taught how to be profitable. The Profit First system created by Mike Michalowicz works, and he certified me to help you implement the system in your business. Remember, the new equation is sales minus profit equals expenses. Let's face it, without cash flow, you can't pay your employees, buy needed materials, or pay your mortgage and support your family. I help you to do that and more so you can focus on the parts of the business you love and receive the rewards for your labor and investment into your business. The stronger you are as a business owner, the more jobs you create, the better we are as a country. Small business owners are the backbone of America, and for that, you deserve to be well rewarded. Just remember, more revenue does not equal more profit. That's why we focus on the bottom line. Well-run businesses are fun to own, and I don't care if you want to sell your business, a sellable business is just fun to manage. For one, it's profitable. Second, it doesn't require you to put out fires every day. And third, you get to go on vacation. That's the goal. David Barnett is back again on the podcast to share what he sees and some of the hype that's out there, but that's not real. So if you think everyone else is making money but you, I can tell you, and so can he, it's not true. Most business owners struggle with this. That's why Profit First is so cool and so helpful. David Barnett has been working with small and medium-sized business owners for over 20 years. He's helped entrepreneurs buy and sell them. He's helped them grow. He's helped people finance them. He's the host of a YouTube channel with hundreds of videos about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses and can be found anytime at his blog, davidcbarnett.com. Let's meet my friend, David. Welcome to the Profit Answer Man, David Barnett. It's great to have you join us today. Hey, I'm glad to be back. Excited for the conversation. Can you share a little bit about yourself and your business? Yeah, sure. So I'm a former business broker. That was a, a previous career, and I've reincarnated myself after a brief stint in banking as a consultant who helps people buy and sell businesses 
And so I use a lot of the knowledge and background and experience acquired during my business brokerage days to help people with a little bit of a different business model. Interesting. You know, it's funny because I see all these things pop up from time to time about buying cash flowing businesses and how you you essentially don't even need to work. You don't need to do everything. These businesses magically just operate on their own. You buy them and you collect cash. And I'm always hesitant to believe this because I see the business owners that I work with and I've never seen that yet. Well, and I run into this all the time because I work with buyers and sellers. I will often be approached by buyers, searchers who are saying, I want to buy a business that already has a management team in place so that they're doing everything. I don't have to do anything. And I will snarkily reply, oh, you mean you want to buy shares in publicly traded companies that issue dividends? That's not really what I do. Because honestly, if we want to talk about completely passive business ownership where you don't have to do anything, I think that's the only option is to buy stock in the phone company, you know, or whatever big company and let them send you a dividend check. Because if you own a privately controlled business, you will be involved in that business to one degree or another. And I've got all kinds of great examples and stories that I can share. I would love to hear examples, but before we do, what's the minimum amount of time you can be involved and still maintain a good control? That's a great question. And I think it depends on the type of business. And I think it depends on how you've organized the business. So one of my clients in the past was a gentleman who had a vice president role with an energy company. And he had a couple of different business units and departments that reported to him. And in his role, he developed a management method of creating these weekly reports. And so each division head or company that he oversaw had to create a weekly report that was tailored to that company that information that was specific to that business. So he could quickly see what was going on in that business beyond what the financials might tell him. Number of inquiries, conversion rate, sales rate, all this kind of stuff. And so he decided that he was going to buy a business of his own and keep his job. And he was able to successfully do that. And he acquired three different businesses by using the same management technique. So he had his own managers do these weekly dashboard reports that he could review on Saturday mornings. And then on Sunday evenings, he would call them all and he would talk with them about the week to come, 30, 40 minute call, and just look at the results. And so he was able to organize these businesses in such a way that he had access to the information and could see what was happening. Some businesses are a little bit easier to organize in that way than others. And so it really depends. If you're a a highly specialized technical business that relies on very skilled professional people to go and do their jobs, it, it may be a little more difficult than if you are, you know, owning a you know, burger joint where you can summarize the activity a little more easily with a, with a bunch of numbers. I often say that if somebody is out there franchising in a particular industry, it's probably an indicator that the industry may be a good one for a high degree of systematization. And it takes time and effort to build those systems. And then you've got to build a good dashboard. Mm -hmm. That gives you the complete set of information that you need for your business. That's what we do with our clients is exactly that. We do our best to get the business owner out of the business, but they all seem to want to work in the business. Well, you know, a lot of people get into these businesses because they have these ambitions or they see themselves in a particular kind of role. And so if that's how you see yourself, self-image is really important in all of this. As a quick aside, 
I would often get people who were like middle managers of big companies or civil servants or bankers or something who would come in when I was a business broker and look at businesses I had for sale. And they might be attracted to quick service food restaurant. And I would ask them, have you ever worked in such a place? And if they said no, I would say, well, are you going to be able to reconcile being the owner of and perhaps the manager of this business with your self-image and how you conduct yourself, you know, at the golf course or in public or with your friends? Because if, if you can't reconcile ownership and management of that business with your self-image, you probably won't get to the closing table. You might invest a lot of time, and my time, uh, in looking at the business and analyzing the business and doing due diligence. But if you're not going to be proud going to the golf course and telling everyone you're the owner of the septic pumping business, for example, you're probably not going to buy it. <laughs> That's kind of funny. I think for a lot of people I work with, they want challenges and they want to keep busy. Mm-hmm. And so if they're not doing it in their business, then they're going to create a whole nother business to go do it in. And again, everyone is a little bit different. You've got to match who you are to what you do. And I think that's a step that most people don't do. And the second part is learning to let go and understand. Yeah. Learning to delegate and be pleased with the results, even though they may not be exactly how you would have, you know, executed whatever task. So, so true. So you're going to tell us some stories. Oh, yeah. What stories did you want to hear again, Rocky? We're talking about stories of business owners. Yeah. To just what degree can they not be involved? Well, I'm actually working with a colleague of ours, Mike Finger, who's an exit coach. He helps people work on getting their businesses ready to sell. And he and I decided back in the summertime that we were going to launch a new podcast called Your Exit Squad. And we've been recording the first season since the end of summer. And so I've been talking with a lot of these business owners. And today, earlier today, I did an interview with a couple who had opened up a coffee shop. And initially, they were working there a lot, but they knew they had read E-Myth. They had read, you know, Robert Kiyosaki's Cashflow Quadrants. They knew they had to build systems so they could build a business that would stand on its own and operate on its own. And eventually, they got to the point where they took the mythical general manager, the person who's supposed to run everything for the owner. They defined all of the tasks, responsibilities of that role, and they divided them in three. So they had three people that stood up as assistant managers, and it was very well organized. One was in charge of everything to do with facilities. Another one was in charge of everything to do with purchasing and inventory. And another was in charge of everything to do with personnel. So scheduling, hiring, you know, making sure payroll was correct, all that sort of thing. And so these three managers ran their different functional areas, and they were open from six in the morning until nine o'clock at night or something like that. So there were two shifts of workers every day and they were only putting in like two to four hours of their own time per week. However, they were always on call. And, And what that would mean is that they could go days and days without hearing anything from the business. And then all of a sudden there's a phone call at 11 o'clock at night for some problem, or there's a phone call in the middle of the day for some problem. And, or, you know, they would be at, pulled into conversations on Slack. They're using Slack to communicate within the team. And so they actually achieved the nirvana that you talk about, you know, this whole idea of having a business that kind of runs on its own, a very little ownership involvement, but they couldn't get away. Always occupied space in their mind because ultimately they were responsible. Their names were personally guaranteeing the bank loans. Their names were personally guaranteeing the lease. And if something should ever go wrong, they were the faces of the business. You know, if there was some kind of crisis, they had to get in there and deal with it. 
And so they were never really free of the responsibility and obligations that came with being the owner of the business. They were running another company on this as well at the same time. That's what their full-time gig was, was it was another business that they had going. And so the idea of creating that business as a cash flowing asset for them, while they did succeed in one way, it certainly wasn't like owning dividend paying publicly traded big company stock. Because you are going to have problems and you're going to have to deal with them. Even if your entire business is run by a general manager, one day the GM quits. Yes. <laughs> and listen, I've seen other examples too. I was working with a client who bought a company in Oregon. And a week after he bought the company, one of the senior team leaders, unfortunately, was in a vehicle accident and died. And that person was in charge of organizing that they were a project-based company and they would do short-run manufacturing for different companies that would have them sort of subcontract wiring harnesses in different jobs for, for things that were being built. And this one fellow's job was to organize the whole production run and how, which workers did what and what the order of operations was and everything. And the seller of the business had done that, but he hadn't done it for 15 years. And so when the person died, the new owner and the seller had to come in and essentially teach themselves how to do that role because there wasn't anything there as far as a process or methodology that they had access to. This fellow may have developed certain things that he was using or, or knew of different ways to plan it out. He may even had tools on his computer, but they weren't current as to what these things were. They weren't able to access it. And so it really set them back for a few weeks. And for the first couple of jobs they had to do without him, they were really challenged. And, and I think that's one of the things I hear is transferring of knowledge, especially as we see boomer workers retire, is mm -hmm. getting in a younger worker who's got enough knowledge. And then it comes down to work ethic and work attitude and all of the other things. It just seems to be a struggle, depending on the type. I see that more on the manufacturing side I see, than maybe on a tech side or so forth. But they all seem to to struggle to get that down. How long does it take to create these systems to the point where you're much more hands off? Three months, six months, three years? It's a great question. Uh, you know, back to my business broker days, I used to run into people who used to manage their business from what I refer to as Big Bird's Nest. Because you'd go into their office and it would be completely yellow in there with little sticky notes all over everything, reminding them to do one thing or another. And, and I would look at this mess and I would be like, I'm going to bring someone here and convince them they should pay money to step into your shoes. You know, we're going to have to get this thing a little bit better organized. And initially I, I would buy people copies of EMF, but of course they wouldn't read them or do anything that was in that book. But eventually I had to come up with a way of doing it. I, it eventually evolved into a system that I have today as an online course called build a business that people will want to buy where I take people through a methodology. So step one, you know, do this. Step two, do this. And I've coached some people one-on-one -on -one through that process. And if they're willing to invest, and it, here it is, it's an investment mentality. Because if you're willing to invest a few hours each week to creating these systems and creating an operations manual and creating this guidebook that's going to lead the, you know, your employees and people in the future, what ends up happening is you end up saving time down the road. Just like if you invest money in some kind of investment, it's going to compound over time. You invest time into these systems and it saves you time on the back end. One of the best 
examples I can give of that is when you replace someone, when you have a new employee, when they have access to complete job descriptions with detailed lists of all the things that they do, how they're done, why they're done that way, what the normal expectation is for how long it should take to do those things, and how those tasks fit into the overall scheme of the workflow of the organization and who's handling things before it gets to that person and who handles things afterwards. When someone can see all that and have access to it directly, and you know, in the case of doing particular tasks, maybe there's not a description, but rather there's a video that's been made where someone recorded someone doing something. That person can get in and start doing their job without constantly coming back and asking for further guidance. And when that person sees the org chart and sees that there are two other people, maybe in other locations with the same role that they have, they realize that they can reach out to those other people that have the same role in another location and ask that person for help as well. And so the investment in organization really yields dividends in time saved further down the road. And the biggest one of all is, you know, when it comes time to sell your business, businesses are valued based on the cash flow that's, that you create in the business. But every buyer is going to look at that cash flow and they're going to ask themselves this question. Will this cash flow continue under my stewardship? And if they can't answer yes to that question, then they're going to discount the price they're willing to pay for the cash flow to the point that they feel comfortable that they'll be able to maintain. And so I often have this conversation with people because they want to get a business ready for sale. And then they'll say, well, do I need to address it now? And I'll say, well, the thing that makes your business more saleable also makes it more easily managed today. And so by investing the effort right now in fixing your business and creating these systems, you end up with an easier to manage and usually more profitable business in the present. And it becomes more sellable when something happens that forces you to put it on the market. And, and I don't know if I mentioned this in one of my previous visits, Rocky, but the five big reasons why businesses go up for sale, privately controlled small businesses go up for sale. The biggest one is burnout, fatigue, and boredom, followed by divorce, poor health, the need to relocate, and then it's retirement. If you've been listening and paying attention, as I mentioned those five things, you'll know that four of them are not planned for. Only retirement is. And so oftentimes, you know, I'll get calls from people who say, I need to sell my business because X is happening or has happened. And that's not the time to go back and fix all these things. At that point, we're then looking at what are the problems? How can we anticipate how a buyer might view those problems? And how will we present this in a way that still makes sense? If you want to get the maximum value, you had to start two years ago. And that's true. I've also heard stories where people went through this process because they wanted to sell their business. And after they were done going through the process, they loved their company. And then they went to stay. Oh, that happened to me. Because it wasn't, yeah. (laughs) That happened to me because I would work with some of my clients in my business broker days on this to try to make their business more saleable so that I could earn a commission. And then they would decide not to sell. And and that was one of the frustrating things because then I hadn't earned anything. But it made me realize that there were a whole slew of other opportunities in working with business owners around the topic of this buy-sell transaction thing. So do you find that most businesses have enough margin that they can hire somebody to operate the business and they don't have? So when you use the word business, you're referring to a legal structure, like a business in the eyes of the government, like you're a corporation or an LLC. 
Is that your definition of business, Rocky? Business is whatever the business is. I don't care how it's legally defined, but, you know, we're going to go and we're going to buy this business in whatever way it is. Usually, a lot of times when they're selling it, right, the person's heavily involved in the business. So that's why they're getting all this money. But if the buyer or if the new owner doesn't want to spend that kind of time, well, we got to put somebody in that seat and that person's going to take X amount of dollars. Is there enough margin for that usually? So the reason why I asked you that question in that specific way is because I take those legal entities that most people call businesses and I divide them into four categories. You could even say there's a fifth category. So I call them hobbies, jobs, small businesses, going concerns, and speculative ventures. So if your business provides a, and you're the owner operator of the business and it provides a cash flow to you that is less than what you would earn if you went and worked someplace else doing the same job, then you own a hobby because the only reason that it continues is because you're donating part of your time to help it function. And if your cash flow that you enjoy is equal to what you would earn if you went and worked for the big company down the road, then you own a job. And it's only once you get beyond that point where the business can afford to pay you what you're worth. And then there's this other profit on top of that. That's what I call a small business. And if that other profit is like half a million dollars or more, and now we're talking about a goal, a going concern. And if there is no profit and you're working every day to try to create something that may pay out someday, that's what I call the speculative venture. So a lot of the other like tech startup type things I put in that speculative venture bucket. I don't really consider them to be a business because in my mind, a business has to have that cash flow. It's got to generate that money. And so the reason why I've come to categorize businesses in that way is because a huge chunk of what everybody calls businesses are hobbies and jobs. They're in that pool that you refer to that don't really have the sufficient excess cash flow to be able to replace the owner with a full-time manager and then have any kind of proceeds or profit beyond that. Now, if you happen to be an owner of a job, you don't have to entirely despair because believe it or not, there is a market for that. There are people who are interested in acquiring that um, and different types of people. So new people to the country, maybe, who are professionals in other countries, but they can't get their credentials recognized and they need to earn an income might be in the market for something like that. And I've also had people go into like a semi-retirement mode. So big city, high-flying executive with a high-stress job and a high income wants to become a fly fishing guide in Colorado or something and is buying a job, but really is just changing their life. And so it's motivated by something outside of the financial picture entirely, right? So how often do I see businesses that really have this excess earnings? It's, It's quite rare. An awful lot of the small businesses that I see the financial statements of, they struggle to be able to pay that owner a fair market wage for what they do and then have some excess money. You know, and a lot of times if there are debts in the business, you know, if they've got a bank loan of some kind, part of that bank loan is paid by owners who underpay themselves. They don't take a fair market wage for the value that they're doing. And they have an idea that they are they're paying off that loan, they're building something that's going to you know, potentially pay dividends in the future. The reality of the world of small business is that small business is very risky. And in my opinion, you know, if we look at the way that they're priced as far as the multiples of cash flow uh, and then compare it with other kinds of investments, the pricing in the marketplace would indicate that this is a rather risky kind of asset. I would say that it really behooves people to figure out how to make some money 
so that they can get their investment back out and earn what they're worth while they're working for the business that they own. So profit first, right? Yeah. <laughs> Listen, it's, I'm a big fan of profit first. I've, I have met people who have implemented it with or without coaches helping them, or they just maybe read the book and decided to start doing it. And I'll tell you, it, it makes sense when people become focused on this idea that they do need to have this excess beyond, you know, just their own paycheck. Well, what you focus on expands, right? It does. And it works. And like you said, people can do it by reading the book. We've now got a course so that people who need more help can get more help and get through friction points. And then we go all the way up to one-on-one for those who just go, you know what? I just don't want to do this. You do this and let me go do what I love. And we're like, sure. You know, we've created full circle now. So wherever they are, we can help them to do that. So as you see people who are coming to sell you a business, what are some of the main reasons that, that they're not as valuable is the owner thinks that they are. Yeah. So some of the big issues that people have a hard time with is that when you buy a business, the business is valued on the cash flow. That's what a business buyer wants to acquire. They want to acquire cash flow. So there's certain types of businesses that require a lot of expensive equipment to operate. To think of construction or trucking or other industries where there's a lot of gear. And so often what will happen is people will have a lot of money invested in stuff but they're not employing that stuff to create a cash flow that even warrants the investment in the stuff. And so what ends up happening with these businesses is I say, look, you may have a million dollars worth of equipment, but you're only generating a cash flow of 200,000 a year. And in your industry, businesses typically sell for about three times cash flow, that's 600,000. So if you want someone to buy your business as a business, you're gonna have to discount the value of your equipment to get somebody to take this on. Because you're not employing that capital effectively enough to actually get a rate of return on the machinery and equipment to warrant the investment. It's a tough conversation to have with people. And that's why often businesses in that scenario don't ever end up going on the market. They just they sell the stuff. They liquidate, right? Because they don't have to go through the, the trouble of finding that buyer. The, the other big issue would be around things like customer concentration. You know, you can grow a business and if you've got one or two or three customers that represent 50% of your revenue, the very first question that a buyer is going to ask or, or their banker, if they're talking to a bank, is going to be what's going to happen if one of these mainstay huge clients happens to depart? How is that going to impact the business? It doesn't mean that your business becomes unsellable and the business may very well be valuable but it can have a huge impact on the terms of sale. So a buyer is likely going to want you to continue carrying the risk for this business that you've built. And so I have a client right now, uh, actually, who's, who's negotiating to buy a business just like this. And what we're doing is we're having the seller finance part of the transaction. And there's more than one seller note. There's a general seller note dealing with part of the value of the business, but each of the primary main concentrated clients has their own seller note. So the payments on those notes are tied to the revenue from those specific major clients. And if they, for whatever reason, stop buying from this business, then the payments on those specific notes will cease. So it's it's effectively that the buyer will get a discount on the business based tied to one of these clients discontinuing. Because at the end of the day, you know, what is that buyer buying? They're buying a cash flow and the cash flow is based upon a few key relationships 
And if the buyer doesn't get to enjoy those key relationships over the period of time it takes to pay off the business, then they haven't really acquired what they offered or what they were shown, I guess. And we we also see it on the flip side. If you've only got one supplier. Oh, that could, yeah, that could have an impact too. That can have an impact or a lot of times, depending if the business has been around a long time, if they're renting the business from themselves. The yeah, so you, you mean you're talking about the real estate? Yeah, real yeah. estate can throw a whole big wrinkle in because one of the things that sometimes happens is if you've got a long held business, the building may be paid off or something and, and the business's rent that they're paying may not be a market rent at all. I've run into many circumstances where a business should probably have been closed a long time ago, but because it wasn't paying a fair market rent to the landlord who happened to be the same owner, it appeared that the business was making money. But if I were to buy that business and pay a fair market rent, I wouldn't make any money at all. And so what's happening in that scenario is that the capital accumulated in the real estate is effectively subsidizing a poorly performing business. And every year when you go to your accountant and you have financial statements prepared and you you know get your tax returns prepared and everything, the accountant is compiling that information so you know what's going on in the business so that you make sure that you pay the taxes that you owe, etc. But those statements may not be an accurate reflection of what you need to get out of the business from a finance or investment point of view. And this is where the concept of normalization comes in. So if you own a business and you own the building and you're not paying a fair market rent for the build, for the building that you use, well, you can just change that. You can take your financial statements. You can say, what if, what if I had to pay this much for rent? What would that then do to my bottom line? And you can create a normalized set of financials for the business to help you understand just how this business is is behaving? Is it actually earning an appropriate rate of return on the equity you have invested? Because if the building isn't getting the fair rent that it deserves, then that just means that you are losing out on the rate of return that should be coming to you for the investment you made in the real estate. They're, they're two different businesses, if you will. They are. And that's a big part of if you don't know the right questions to ask, or if you don't know the benchmark numbers, a lot of that stuff gets glossed over by people who don't have help making sure that they did it correctly. Well, thank you so much. You've provided a ton of valuable information. If people would like to learn more about you, your programs and your content, what's the best way for them to do that? The best place to come is over on my blog site, davidcbarnett.com. There's links to all sorts of stuff over there, uh, including my podcast and YouTube channel. i I put out a video every week about buying, selling, managing, or financing small and medium-sized businesses. And I also have people come over for interviews from time to time. And all of that content has been building up since 2014. There's there's a huge treasure trove of information there. I'd love to share it with everyone. So come on over and subscribe. And I've got an email list and all that stuff. So it's all at davidcbarnett.com. Anyone who's interested in deal making should come on over. I was in there too. I, you, you, you have been a guest on my show. That's true. And honestly, I tell business owners, if you can build a business that's sellable, you'll have a business that's fun to run and highly profitable. And that's why I constantly harp on this topic. It's absolutely true. Absolutely true. There are many ways to exit a business. And people usually just think about the sale. But if you can create the proper systems and organize your business in such a way, you can exit by not having to be there all the time. I've met many people over the years who continue to run their business, but four months of the year, they run it from Florida. 
right? When it becomes winter, if they live in a cold climate. And maybe they're still doing things from Florida. Maybe they still log in and they do the payroll, they do some banking and stuff like that. But they've created a methodology and a system so that they can do that from wherever they happen to be. And so by embarking on a path to get better organized and to create these systems, you can then have options. And that's the key. And another big reason why you want to be a business owner is so that you have different options in life. And you can decide if you want to you know, run it from another place part of the year if you want to be in it all the time or if you want to sell. And if you do choose to sell, all of those systems are going to make it that much easier to show someone that you'll be able to teach them how to effectively run the business and maintain the same cash flow that you've enjoyed. So, so true. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Rocky. We like to help build the dashboards to manage your business. For our one-on-one clients, we create custom ones designed to help them manage their business and understand their numbers. Let's face it, we all need a scoreboard. And in our course, The Profit Blueprint, we help you to build yours. When you take the time to understand the math of your business, it becomes easier to make the changes you need to make because you know where it's falling short and where it's doing great. Your team members should also have a number to track. It may be number of sales calls or how many clients they serve in the day. Every business is slightly different, so you have to figure out what works for you. The most important thing to know with a number or with goals is people will achieve what you ask them to. Make sure you pick correctly because sometimes there's unintended consequences. And remember, you don't need more resources. You need to be more resourceful. Let's focus on the bottom line. If you'd like for us to be a part of your profitability journey, we have different programs available ranging from do-it-yourself to one-on-one coaching. Our course, The Profit Blueprint, teaches you everything you need to know to transform your profitability. There are three different tiers ranging from DIY to done with you so that businesses of all sizes can get the support that's best. Join the waitlist in the show notes to get more information and be a part of the next cohort. If you want a done-for-you service, you can hire us as your chief profitability officers. We only work with a handful of clients, so they all get our full attention. We work with business owners who have or are growing to half a million to 10 million in revenue. You can use the scheduling link in the show notes to get on our calendar for a good fit conversation to see if we're the right people to support you and how we can help you. This episode of the Profit Answer Man podcast is brought to you by smbpodcastnetwork.com. The network is a collection of podcasts and shows from around the internet, which focus on bringing you interviews with amazing guests who share actionable advice, ideas, and information for small and medium-sized business owners and entrepreneurs. Visit www.smbpodcastnetwork.com to find more great shows and easily subscribe to be notified of new episodes. It's a great way to discover quality content. If you've discovered us via the network, then I hope you enjoy today's show and will consider subscribing directly so you never miss our episodes. Remember to check out my other podcast, Richer Soul, where we talk about how to live the ultimate life and be the best business owner you can be. As we close out, let's repeat the mantra. Revenue is vanity. Profit is sanity. 
and cash is king. Have an abundant and profitable week.